Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Radio Westeros, episode 40. I am the Greyjoy. Spoilers all books! Hello, and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston. And I'm Mute Boy in England. And today we're bringing you an episode all about Balon Greyjoy. The Greyjoy, Lord Reaper of Pike and King of the Iron Islands. However briefly... Well, we've covered the War of the Five Kings and all of the other kings involved, so we thought it only fair to take a close look at Balon. We'll start with some Iron Islands and House Greyjoy history before talking our way through what we know of Balon's early years, his ascent to the Seastone Chair and First Rebellion, the years following, and his Second Rebellion and death. And we'll close the episode with a look at the aftermath of Balon's death, which concerns all of his family pretty closely. And since two of his children and two of his brothers are POV characters, and we expect all of them to figure prominently in the action of The Winds of Winter, this should segue nicely into some upcoming things we have planned. Speaking of The Winds of Winter, this episode contains spoilers for the unpublished sample chapter, The Forsaken. We heard it read by George at Balticon in 2016, and we'll draw on it in a few instances in this episode. And we want to once again shout out Michael Klarfeld, whose Iron Islands map was released last year. It's a great tie-in to this episode, and we served as models, along with many other members of the fandom. If you visit his website, you can view the details, see who we portrayed, and of course, also order and download copies of all his maps there. So check it out at claradox.de. And speaking of shout-outs, a big one to all of you who have joined our Patreon campaign to support the podcast including our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Paler's Milklass patrons, Rory, Laura, Sister Winter, John Weirgarian, and Kelly. And if you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, find our campaign at Patreon, where you can donate any amount on a per-episode basis, and depending on the tier you choose, gain early access to our episodes, shout-outs, and access to our patron-exclusive episode on Varamir. Our patrons help us keep Radio Westeros going and growing, and with your help, we have some big ideas that we'll be bringing to your ears in the months ahead. So thanks, everyone, and now, let's get going with Balon Greyjoy. 
Archmaster Rigney once wrote that history is a wheel, for the nature of man is fundamentally unchanging. What has happened before will perforce happen again, he said. So we'll begin our analysis today, as we often do in character studies, with an overview of the history of the Greyjoy family and the Iron Islands. In real life, history can give us the gift of understanding the present, and it's no different in A Song of Ice and Fire. It was Balon Greyjoy's good brother, Roderick Harlaw, who quoted Archmaester Rigney, writing that history is a wheel. Incidentally, a little nod to James Rigney, who, as Robert Jordan, wrote the Wheel of Time series. Anyway, George seems particularly fond of this idea, as we see time and again parallels with Westeros' past playing out on the pages of the main story. Yeah, we sure do, whether the parallels are to the Blackfire Rebellions, the Dance of the Dragons, or Azor Ahai, they pop up frequently, and we as readers can gain a lot of insight by reading the histories that George has given us. In the Iron Islands have their own set of examples. In the quote, Roger Carlot was cautioning his niece, Asha Greyjoy, about her uncle Euron, using a historical parallel to make his point. Since we'll discuss Euron Greyjoy and his similarities to Euron Greyiron in another segment, here we'll dive into the Iron Islands and Greyjoy history as a way of illuminating who the Iron Islanders are, and by extension, understanding the character of Balon Greyjoy. The Iron Islanders, according to the World Book, consider themselves a race apart. Neither First Men, nor Andal, nor any other kind of immigrant. According to their priest, Sauron Salttung, they, quote, did not come to these holy islands from godless lands across the seas. We came from beneath those seas, from the watery halls of the drowned god, who made us in his likeness and gave to us dominion over all the waters of the earth. And so this sense of uniqueness and entitlement at the core of their identity has driven the Ironborn to be fearless, seafaring reavers for millennia. But while their esteem for the Drowned God leaves no room for recognition of the old gods that the First Men adopted from the Children of the Forest after their settlement in mainland Westeros, or the Seven of the Andals, the Ironborn do recognize the Storm God, who exists in opposition to the Drowned God. And this similarity to the gods worshipped by the first men of the Stormlands, who believed in a sea god and a wind goddess, is actually a strong indication that the original Iron Islanders sprang from the same root. That is, that they are first men migrants who took a different path, and whose culture developed on radically different lines than that of their brethren on the mainland. For there were apparently no old gods or children of the forest on the Iron Islands, remembering the first men on the mainland were influenced in their worship by those original inhabitants. According to the World Book, with their poor soil, the Iron Islands simply didn't have significant forested areas to support weirwood trees, nor did the children build boats. 
So in the absence of that influence, a maritime culture that continued to focus on the old dichotomy of wind and sea developed. And Maesters certainly believe that to be the case, pointing to legends that the first men discovered the seastone chair at Pike, and many islanders themselves now accept it. But there remains the question of the origin of the chair itself, and the suggestion that perhaps the original settlers came from the West rather than the East, a theory that has interesting implications, but as of yet little support in the text besides a couple of rather significant asides in the world book. Regardless of the truth of their origins, the Ironborn still consider themselves to be different from other Westerosi, most of whom, no doubt, would agree wholeheartedly, as the Ironborn reputation as pirates and reavers has certainly reached legendary status. And that's due to the centuries upon centuries of Ironborn captains and kings sailing out of their islands in search of timber to build their ships and thralls to toil in their fields and mines. But rather than developing a trading culture where they traded their iron and tin ore in exchange for the materials they needed to survive, the Ironborn developed what has come to be known as the old way. Essentially a tradition of reaving and taking plunder, the old way values the iron price, that is taking golden necessities from a dead enemy, Military might, especially offensive tactics involving the axe and the sword, though siege warfare was virtually unknown and looked down upon. And fishing, which was deemed acceptable, though farming was not. No, farming was reserved for thralls, as was mining. We do not sow are the Greyjoy words, and in truth, the Ironborn also have a long history of taking food supplies from the Greenlands to supplement what their thralls were able to raise in the poor soil of the islands. And so, over the course of their history, they became known as the Wolves of the Sea, hunting in packs and raiding up and down the western shores of Westeros, so that Northmen, Westerners, and Reachmen alike learned to move inland or build stronger defenses to protect themselves from the Reavers. And while a more detailed history of the Ironborn must wait for an episode devoted solely to that, we want to mention the Grey King, whom we also discussed in our Legends of the South episode, and who is reputed to be the forebear of the Greyjoys, among many other families that have ruled or held sway over the islands, a sort of Garth Greenhands figure for the Iron Islands. That the Greyjoys have been petty kings, occasionally elected to wear the Driftwood crown as High King over their fellows at King's Moots for many centuries, perhaps even millennia, is made clear in the World Book. Yeah, the Ironborn policy of petty kings and captains electing an overlord to wear the driftwood crown at Kingsmoots was a tradition from the golden age of the Iron Islands that failed with the rise of Euron Redhand and House Greyiron, who institutionalized patrilineal inheritance during an era characterized by violence of Ironborn against Ironborn, once prohibited by the old way, and by new behaviors such as colonization and conquest. This would more or less continue until three centuries prior to the current story, though the Grey Irons would be brought down during an era of Andal invasions, only to be replaced by House Hor, who still ruled the Iron Islands and the conquered Riverlands, 
when Aegon Targaryen launched his invasion of Westeros. And when Aegon the Conqueror famously destroyed House Hall at their newly built stronghold of Harrenhal, the Ironborn were left defeated and leaderless. After nearly two years of infighting, it was Aegon himself who went to the islands on Beleriand and put an end to the violence when he deemed that the Iron Islands would henceforth be ruled by a Lord Paramount, as he had allowed in other regions, including the Rivlands, that had so recently been under Ironborn control. He allowed the islanders to choose their own leader, and from the surviving lords of the islands, Vicon Greyjoy, the Lord Reaper of Pike, emerged as the newly styled Lord of the Iron Islands. So, the seat of House Greyjoy is at Pike, a castle on the island of the same name. The text tells us, The Greyjoy stronghold stood upon a broken headland, its keeps and towers built atop massive stone stacks that thrust up from the sea. Bridges knotted Pike together, arched bridges of carved stone and swaying spans of hempen rope and wooden planks. Pike is so ancient that the sea has eroded the cliffs and headland it was built upon and left the castle structures on individual islands. Beyond a curtain wall and a series of outbuildings on the headland, access to the individual keeps, including the Great Keep which houses the ancient sea stone chair, is by bridge or walkway. It's a bleak and grim locale, which we'll discuss again later, but by all accounts, Vicon Greyjoy was a cautious man who made wise choices in his rule from the Seastone Chair. That's right, he didn't quite outlaw reaving, but he did make sure that mainland Westeros was safe from his subjects by forbidding reaving within the Seven Kingdoms. Lord Vicon also allowed Septons back to the islands for the first time in generations and proclaimed he was Aegon's man and as such worked to preserve the Targaryen king's interests. He ruled from Pike with a firm hand and passed his temperament on to his son Gorin. Where Lord Gorin differed from his father was in his acceptance of having the faith on the islands. Yeah, after putting down a revolt during the reign of King Aenys I, Lord Gorin claimed as his reward the right to expel the Scepters and Septons from the islands. For many years, this would remain the status quo, but still the Greyjoys steadfastly refused to allow a return to the old way, and in spite of the harshness of life on the islands, maintained their nominal loyalty to the Iron Throne. It was Dalton Greyjoy, known as the Red Kraken, who inherited the sea stone chair not long before the civil war that would become known as the Dance of the Dragons, who would make the first significant move towards restoring ironborn dominance of the waves since the conquest. A fierce fighter who loved three things according to the world book, the sea, his sword, and women, Lord Dalton saw the dance as an opportunity to begin a campaign of reaving up and down the west coast of Westeros, nominally in support of Rhaenyra Targaryen's blacks. Wielding the Valyrian steel sword Nightfall, Dalton made inroads into the west, including sacking Lannispoor and taking Fair Isle. Lord Dalton's reign of terror was unchecked by the end of the dance and the commands that came from the Council of Regents to cease his reaving. 
In the end, he was killed in his sleep by a woman at Faircastle, and within days of his death, chaos broke loose in the islands as his salt sons struggled to secure the succession. While it's unclear who exactly succeeded Lord Dalton, it is clear that Targaryens were eventually able to subdue the islands and that the Greyjoys retained their lordship, as the world book goes on to tell us of a succession of Greyjoy lords and their deeds during the century and a half that followed. At the time Targaryen dominance of Westeros reached its nadir with the reign of the Mad King and Robert Baratheon's rebellion, the Iron Islands were ruled by Lord Quellon Greyjoy. Quellon is accounted by most as the wisest man to sit the seastone chair in the modern age, being a reformer who desired to increase ties with the rest of Westeros. But he was also a large man, six and a half feet tall, and a fierce fighter who commanded the respect of his fellows. In his youth, he fought in the War of the Ninepenny Kings in the Stepstones, that conflict which preceded Robert's Rebellion, and brought so many lords paramount or their heirs into close contact and friendship with one another. Yeah, we've talked about this before and really can't say enough how much it's implied that the bonds forged during that final gasp of the Blackfyre rebellions really shaped the events of Westeros in the years leading up to the end of the Targaryen dynasty. Lord Quellon saw the value to his relatively poor region of forging stronger bonds with his neighbours, bonds based upon friendship and trade rather than fear and rapine. For many years of his rule, so strong a lord was he that few would oppose him openly in his quest for reform. Lord Quellen was married three times. Aaron Greyjoy recalls that, quote, nine sons had been born from the loins of Quellen Greyjoy from those three marriages. His first wife was a lady of Stone Tree, a house whose very sigil brings the non-existence of weirwood trees, which turn to stone in the centuries after they die, on the Iron Islands into question. Lady Stone Tree bore three sons, the first of whom was Harlan, who contracted grayscale at some point in his youth, and the latter two of whom died in infancy. Quellon's second wife was a lady of House Sunderly, who bore five sons and eventually died from an unspecified cause. And Lady Sunderly's sons are the Greyjoys we all know and love. Balon was the eldest, followed by Euron, Victarion, Uragon, and Aeron. At some point after her death, Quellon married a third time, this time to a woman from House Piper. A Greenlander wife was a rare thing in the Iron Islands, and clearly Lady Piper didn't quite fit in on Pike. She bore one son, Robin, who was recalled as a sickly idiot, years later by his half-brother Aaron, and died in childbirth not long after her husband was killed in battle. While Lord Quellen seems to have been a decent enough sort with his progressive ideals, something was clearly amiss back at home. In addition to the infant deaths of his second and third sons, three more of his sons would eventually follow their brothers to the grave, and these would be no innocent deaths. When George read the forsaken sample chapter from The Winds of Winter aloud at Balticon in 2016, we learned much and more of the horrors of Quellon's fifth son, Euron. 
Yeah, we all know Euron as a beastly character. In fact, we view him as the new villain of the piece in a story where the villains keep getting worse, from Joffrey to Ramsay and now Euron. But the Forsaken confirmed things that had previously only been hinted at or wondered about. First, Euron confessed to pinching his elder brother Harlan's nostrils shut. Afflicted by grayscale, Harlan couldn't struggle. Given that Aaron, born around the same time as Balon's son, Roderick, sitting grey-faced and still in a windowless tower room and speaking in whispers that grew fainter every day as the grayscale turned his tongue and lips to stone. This murder would have taken place sometime in the decade before Lord Quellon's death. While the murder of his elder brother, Harlan, sounds almost too easy for Euron, who confessed that he also later killed his younger half-brother, Robin, making note of his big, soft head, though it's unclear how much later this occurred, and we'll have more on that later. As for Euron or Yuri, he would die at the age of 14 of an infection caused by a mortification in his hand after losing several fingers while playing at the finger dance with his brother, Aaron. This would lead to Balon's quid pro quo punishment of the maester who failed to prevent the infection, which we'll also address shortly. But for now, back to the apparent dysfunction in the Quellon Greyjoy household, we also gained confirmation in The Forsaken that Euron sexually abused his younger brothers. It seems to have been directed mainly at Aaron and Euragon, although we can't rule out other abuses that may have occurred. And we learned in A Feast for Crows that many years later, Euron would seduce his brother Victarion's wife, leading to the woman's death at Victarion's hands, an unhealed rift between the brothers and Euron's banishment from the Iron Islands by Balon. So on the one hand, we could simply accept that one of Lord Quellon's sons was born a monster, but since we like to consider reasons behind a character's actions, we can't help but wonder what went wrong in Quellen's family and why he himself failed to recognize such rampant abuse among his own sons. We really don't have any definitive answers, and we'll reserve a full analysis of Euron Greyjoy's character for a future episode. But as it relates to Balon, the question seems to be, where was the elder brother, the one that all the others apparently looked up to when all of this was happening? Well, it's from the memory of Aaron Greyjoy, the youngest of Quellon's surviving sons, that we get our only glimpse of what young Balon was like. When he learns of his brother's death, Aaron recalls, Balon the eldest and boldest, a fierce and fearless boy, who lived only to restore the Ironborn to their ancient glory. At ten, he scaled the flint cliffs to the Blind Lord's haunted tower. At thirteen, he could run along ship's oars and dance the finger dance as well as any man in the Isles. At fifteen, he had sailed with Dagmar Clefjaw to the Stepstones and spent a summer reaving. He slew his first man there and took his first two salt wives. At 17, Balon captained his own ship. 
So it seems like even at a young age, Balon yearned to reverse his Lord Father's position and take the islands in a different direction. Perhaps being so focused on that goal, he failed to see what was happening amongst his brothers. Aaron also thinks of the scorn Balon showed him as the youngest brother and how it was, quote, better to be scorned by Balon the Brave than beloved of Euron Crozai, an ominous hint at the abuse that would be hinted at, but only confirmed to us years later. That Aaron, at least, idolized Balon is quite plain. The prophet also thinks about the impact the words the king is dead has upon him. Aaron Greyjoy had built his life upon two mighty pillars. Those four small words had knocked one down. Only the drowned god remains to me. May he make me as strong and tireless as the sea. So a picture emerges of a strong boy who had the charisma to make his little brother adore him in spite of being dismissive of the child. There's no indication that Balon was aware of Euron's abuses or took any action to prevent them until many years later when he would banish the crow's eye for his offenses against Victarion. But perhaps Balon simply had a closer relationship with Victarion. Described as a powerful man and capable commander, Victarion is unflinchingly loyal to his elder brother, and he would be the one Balon sent to Harlaw to bring his bride, Alanis Harlaw, back to Pike. And this might be the answer to why Euron was unchecked by the strong elder brother. It seems like Aaron may have been born not long before Balon became a married man and father himself. The age difference alone would account for the lack of interest, while the distraction of raising his own sons, Roderick and Maron, weren't much younger than Aaron, who was still a youth that was left behind on Pike during Robert's Rebellion, would account for even more. Incidentally, the similarity of age between his eldest sons and youngest brother means that Balon's mother may have been alive when he married Alanis Harlow. And perhaps the absence of the mother accounts for most when considering why Euron at some point in his young adulthood began a campaign of terror against his more defenceless brothers. So, as grievous as the sins of Euron may have been, Balon doesn't seem to have been aware of them, and he and Alanis would have four children by the time Robert Baratheon rebelled against Ares Targaryen. Roderick and Maron would have been young boys, but old enough to be aware of events, while Theon was likely only barely out of infancy, with Asha three or four years older. His wife's house, Harlaw, is one of the largest and most powerful on the Iron Islands, ruling over Harlaw, the most populous island, from their seat at Ten Towers. And as an aside, it's a member of a cadet branch of House Harlaw, who wields the Valyrian steel sword Nightfall in the current books. Yeah, recall that Nightfall once belonged to the fearsome Red Kraken. It's not yet been revealed how the sword was transferred from House Greyjoy to House Harlaw, but since the knight in question, Sir Harris Harlaw, also happens to be Lady Alanis Greyjoy's first cousin, we wonder if there's some path for the sword to be regained by the Greyjoys in the main story. 
Well, it would certainly be an interesting development, we think, but one we'll clearly have to wait and see on. Getting back to Quellon and Balon now, when Robert's Rebellion first swept across Westeros, Lord Quellon's response was caution. Throughout the rebellion, the aging lord had resolved to take no side, but when Rhaegar fell at the trident, his grown sons, Balon, Euron, and Victarion, united to urge him to choose a side, making it clear which side they thought would benefit them most. And so Lord Quellon, whose own health was failing him, relented and led an attack of the Iron Fleet upon the Reach, a region that was still largely loyalists. At the mouth of the Manda, the Shield Islanders mounted a resistance in which Lord Quellon was killed. Although the Ironborn ultimately prevailed, their contribution to the rebellion didn't seem likely to amount to much and Balon prudently decided to bring the Iron Fleet back to Pike to solidify his succession to the Sea Stone Chair. And so, when we return, we'll be talking about Lord Balon Greyjoy and his own very different vision for the Iron Islands. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Lord Quellon never returned from his last voyage. The drowned god in his goodness granted him a death at sea. It was Lord Balon who came back, with his brothers Euron and Victarion. Balon Greyjoy's arrival back at Pike marked a new era for the Ironborn. It also coincided roughly with the death of his younger brother Euron. When Yuri lost several fingers whilst playing the axe-throwing game called the Finger Dance with his brother Aaron, the maester who had accompanied Lord Quellen's third wife, a lady of House Piper from the Riverlands, attempted to sew his fingers back on. As Aaron Greyjoy would later recall, instead of healing Yuri's hands the old way with fire and seawater, she gave him to her Greenland maester, who swore that he could sew back the missing fingers. He did that, and later he used potions and poultices and herbs, but the hand mortified and Yuri took a fever. By the time the maester sawed his arm off, it was too late. Yeah, as we mentioned this in the last segment, when Balon discovered what had happened, he took off three of the maester's own fingers and commanded his stepmother to sew them back on. The maester, quote, died raving, and Lady Piper herself died not long after, birthing a stillborn daughter, the last of Lord Quellon's children. 
And although it's not specified, we find it likely that Euron's murder of little Robin happened not long after this, as the lad would have now lacked the protection of his mother, and the urge to cleanse the family of the Greenlanders would likely have been very strong at that point. And the world of ice and fire tells us most of what we know of the early years of Balon's lordship. Even as a child, Yandel tells us, Lord Balon had burned to free the Ironborn from the yoke of the Iron Throne and restore them to a place of pride and power. While he lacked his father's size, Balon was nevertheless his equal as a fighter and was known to be a man of courage, commanding the respect of many who might have disagreed with his father had Quellon been a smaller or less determined man. And after taking his place on the Seastone chair, Balon made sweeping changes to the policies his father had followed, beginning with abolishing the tax on salt wives that his father had decreed as a way of discouraging the practice of Ironborn having multiple wives, and allowing that men taken captive in war could be held as thralls. Lord Balon didn't go as far as expelling the Septons, whose presence on the islands had always been controversial, but he did increase the taxes upon them tenfold. And while the death of the maester at Pike was attributed to an execution for, quote, reasons that remain somewhat obscure, he did immediately send to the citadel for another. The maesters had proven themselves useful as tutors, not to mention that they brought with them their ravens, which would have been invaluable not only in maintaining communication between the far-flung Iron Islands, but also in keeping the islands connected to the mainland. But while Quellon would have seen that as a way of strengthening ties with the Greenlands, Balon likely viewed it as a means of maintaining intelligence, for he was ever a shrewd man. But a shrewd man can also be stubborn, and both Asha and Aaron would note that Balon could be blind to things he didn't want to see. While that trait could shed light on his early lack of response to Euron's abuse of their brothers, which we mentioned earlier, it could also shed some light on the path he chose in the years following Robert's Rebellion. For Balon's dreams of glory and bringing back the old way would propel him forward on a path many would later call an error in judgment born of hubris. About Balon's first years as Lord of the Iron Islands, the world of ice and fire tells us, For five years he prepared, gathering men and longships and building a great fleet of massive warships with reinforced hulls and iron rams, their decks bristling with scorpions and spitfires. The ships of this iron fleet were more galleys than longships, larger than any that the iron men had built before. That's right, Balon was preparing for war, a war that he thought would bring freedom from the Iron Throne and restore the past glory of the Iron Islands. Thinking that the death of the Dragon Kings had presented him with an opportune moment to declare independence from the Seven Kingdoms and reclaim the Ironborn Kingdom of Old, George had this to say about Balon's decision-making at the time. 
Balon Greyjoy did not believe that many of the lords would answer Robert's calling of the banners because he was still viewed as a usurper. Well, only time and great loss would tell how badly Balon had misjudged the situation. And so now we're going to discuss Balon's rebellion, the greatest challenge of Robert Baratheon's reign as Lord of the Seven Kingdoms. Lord Quellen had spent most of his long reign avoiding war. Lord Balon began at once preparing for it. For more than gold or glory, Balon Greyjoy lusted for a crown. Six years after King Robert took the Iron Throne, the Lord of the Iron Islands decided the time had come for him to make his move. George has said, Balon believed that Robert, as a usurper, might not have the strong support of the other lords the way that a Targaryen king would have. He also thought he could defeat Robert at sea. And so, in 289 AC, having completed his new iron fleet of 100 war galleys sailing under the Greyjoy banner, Balon renounced the Iron Throne and had himself crowned King of the Iron Islands with a driftwood crown by the priest Tull the Thrice Drowned at Old Wick. Newly crowned King, Balon declared... The sea shall be my moat, and woe to any man who dares to cross it. And his first move was to send his brother Victarion with his iron fleet to Lannisport to destroy Lord Tywin Lannister's fleet as it lay at anchor, a plan devised by his brother Euron and designed to neutralize the nearest potential threat and give the Ironborn decisive command of the Sunset Sea. The plan was a success, with Victarion himself tossing the torch that burned Lord Tywin's flagship at anchor. The next target was Seaguard in the Riverlands, which Balon thought would fall easily with the element of surprise in their favor, further neutralizing the mainlander's potential response. But remember in the first segment when we mentioned the overall military values of the Ironborn. Basically, for centuries, they had placed a very high value on fighting with axe and sword. As raiders, they were widely feared and respected for their ferocity and bravery, but they had little use or facility for siege warfare. As Dagmar Clefjaw would later remark to Theon, siege warfare is, quote, not the old way. Ironborn fight with swords and axes, not by flinging rocks. There is no glory in starving out a foeman. The attack on Seaguard would not be a siege, but relied upon surprise and ill-prepared defenders meeting the Reavers outside the walls. But we also mentioned how mainlanders on the west coast had strengthened their seaward-facing defenses in response to ironborn reaving. Seaguard, the stronghold of House Malister, had been built centuries before to defend the coastline from ironborn reavers. 
The booming tower of Seagard housed an immense bronze bell, which would be rung to warn small folk to seek shelter within the keep when the longships were sighted. In the three centuries since Aegon's conquest, the bell had not been rung once, but it rang the day Roderick Greyjoy, the eldest son of Lord Balon, fell upon the coast following the burning of the Lannister fleet. Lord Jason Malister was a renowned tourney knight and a veteran of Robert's Rebellion, where he killed three of Prince Rhaegar's bannermen at the Battle of the Trident. As his people sought shelter in the castle, he himself led a ferocious counterattack outside the walls of Seaguard, where he killed Roderick Greyjoy and ultimately drove the Reavers back to the sea. And while it's likely that a period of small raids along the now undefended coast of the Westerlands followed, the next major event of the rebellion would be weeks later and wasn't an offensive manoeuvre, so much as a trap. Yeah, King Robert sent his brother and master of ships, Lord Stannis, with the new royal fleet to take the battle to Victarion and his iron fleet. Joined by the Red Wine Fleet and ships out of Old Town, Stannis would surprise the Iron Fleet in the Straits of Fair Isle. With the mainland to the east and Fair Isle to the west, Victarion would find himself trapped as Stannis blocked the northern and southern ends of the strait. And we mentioned in our War of the Five Kings series that this tactic is similar to that employed by the Persians at the famous Battle of the Straits of Salamis in the Greco-Persian War. Unlike the Persians, however, Stannis would be victorious, although he'd find a similar tactic employed against him at the mouth of the Blackwater many years later. And the victory at Fair Isle would be decisive. Aaron Greyjoy, whose own ship, Golden Storm, was destroyed by Stannis Baratheon's fury, would recall that the Iron Fleet was, quote, smashed on that day, and that he himself spent the remainder of the struggle in the bowels of Casterly Rock. Yeah, and years later, in Victarion's point of view, we would learn that, quote, the memory of Fair Isle still rankled in the Iron Captain's memory, though he would philosophically tell his niece, Asha, every man should lose a battle in his youth, so he does not lose a war when he is old. Regardless of the Iron Captain's feelings on the matter, the Iron Fleet was scattered that day, and the Sunset Sea, Balon's moat, was cleared and left defenseless for Robert to lead his army across. And so, accompanied by Lords Eddard Stark and Tywin Lannister, his Wardens of the North and West, Robert would lead a force of thousands across the sea from Seaguard and Lannisport, with Stannis taking up the land battle and subduing Great Wick, and Sir Barristan Selmy, the new Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, leading a force to Old Wick, along with other landings taking place on Harlaw and Orkmont, the main attack would focus on Pike, with a combination of royal, northern and western forces. When Robert and Ned landed at Lordsport, the only safe anchorage for ships arriving at the island of Pike, they first had to deal with House Botley, who had their seat there. 
The timber in Waddle Keep of the Botleys was raised by the invading Greenlanders, and the town itself was left, quote, a smoking wasteland, the skeletons of burnt longships and smashed galleys littering the stony shore like the bones of dead leviathans, the houses no more than broken walls and cold ashes. Here that's how Theon would recall it when he returned to Pike ten years later. It's also in his point of view that we get our best description of Castle Pike itself, and it's worth hearing the entire passage to set the stage for what happened next. Here it is. The point of land on which the Greyjoys had raised their fortress had once thrust like a sword into the bowels of the ocean, but the waves had hammered at it day and night until the land broke and shattered thousands of years past. All that remained were three bare and barren islands and a dozen towering stacks of rock that rose from the water like pillars of some sea god's temple, while the angry waves foamed and crashed around them. Drear, dark, forbidding, Pike stood atop those islands and pillars, almost a part of them, its curtain wall closing off the headland around the foot of the great stone bridge that leapt from the cliff top to the largest islet, dominated by the massive bulk of the great keep. Farther out were the Kitchen Keep and the Bloody Keep, each on its own island. Towers and outbuildings clung to the stacks beyond, linked to each other by covered archways when the pillars stood close, by long, swaying walks of wood and rope when they did not. The Sea Tower rose from the outmost island at the point of the Broken Sword, the oldest part of the castle, round and tall, the sheer-sided pillar on which it stood half-eaten through by the endless battering of the waves. The base of the tower was white from centuries of salt spray, the upper stories green from the lichen that crawled over it like a thick blanket, the jagged crown black with soot from its nightly watchfire. So, a grim and atmospheric picture of Pike there, and in the final moments of Balon's rebellion, the ironborn lack of experience and even scorn of siege warfare would come into play. Robert's army brought siege engines with them, and we can assume that a people who historically didn't engage in siege warfare probably also lacked for counter-siege defences, besides the walls themselves. And so, after a brutal barrage of stones from the catapults, the south tower of the Curtain Wall would crumble, with Balon's second son, Maron, being crushed in the collapse. And Theon would recall watching from the sea tower as the wall collapsed and Robert and his men stormed through the breach, Robert with his warhammer and his army with torches ablaze. In the tales of the Storming of Pike are a veritable who's who of Westerosi warriors. Voros of Mir was first through the breach with his red robes and terrifying flaming sword. Not far behind were Lord Jorah Mormont and Jacelyn Bywater, both of whom would be knighted by Robert in the aftermath. Sir Barristan Selmy was there, and Gregor Clegane, along with thousands of others. Old Nan's nameless grandson, Hodor's father, perished in the attack on the walls. And with the wall breached and Robert's army in the castle, the outcome was inevitable. Resistance was fierce but short-lived, 
and before long, according to the world of ice and fire, Balon Greyjoy was brought before Robert Baratheon in chains. His rebellion was over, his moat had failed, and the old way seemed destined to remain dead. Time would tell on that score, but the next decade would prove one of bitter defeat for the Lord of the Iron Islands, as we'll discuss in the next segment. You may take my head, but you cannot name me traitor. No grey joy ever swore an oath to a Baratheon. And so Balon's rebellion ended in ashes and bitter defeat. With his two eldest sons dead, when he was brought before Robert Baratheon, he remained defiant. You may take my head, but you cannot name me traitor. No Greyjoy ever swore an oath to a Baratheon, he said, taking refuge in an oversight on Robert's part that had apparently led to Balon never having been called to swear fealty to the new king at King's Landing. And the significance of that oversight really can't be overstated. When Robert died in A Game of Thrones, we saw much being made of lords being summoned to swear fealty to the new king, Joffrey, starting with Ned Stark, but certainly not ending there. Swearing fealty in a feudal society was an important contract where a vassal swore his loyalty and service to his liege lord. The rewards and service could vary, as could the relationships between liege and vassal, but the swearing of oaths is the key to the feudal relationship, and we see it referred to over and over in A Song of Ice and Fire, as some lords choose to swear to Rob or Renly or Stannis as their king, and we see the Reeds journey to Winterfell to swear an oath to the new lord, Rob, with Bran as his representative. So it seems that Robert somehow neglected to demand this oath from Balon Greyjoy following his own successful rebellion and ascent to the Iron Throne. For a period of nearly six years, Balon was apparently allowed to stay in the Iron Islands, left to his own devices, raising a fleet of warships while Robert looked the other way. We think this is somewhat typical of the Robert we know, who didn't appear to enjoy the more difficult aspects of ruling. And certainly if Balon had failed to do something that was expected of him, it would be more than awkward and possibly something Robert might like to avoid or just hope would come to nothing in the end. And as much as we might wonder about it, we cannot know if Balon had been summoned and refused or if John Arryn had been aware that this was trouble waiting to happen and perhaps urged Robert to do something about it. It's simply never mentioned beyond this one line, and so we're left to speculate. But we do see a very strong similarity between Balon's response in his defeat and the legendary words of a very famous real-life rebel. Yeah, in the late 13th century, the Scottish Lord William Wallace was made Guardian of Scotland for his role in key military skirmishes with the English King Edward I, who had named himself Lord Paramount of Scotland in the wake of a period of uncertainty over the Scottish succession. Wallace led the resulting uprising against the English until he was captured and executed in 1305. 
and William Wallace, who incidentally many now think of as Braveheart, although that's not quite accurate and the movie of that name is reputed to be one of the most historically inaccurate movies ever made, is reported to have said a version of the following when he stood trial for high treason in London. I cannot be a traitor, for I owe Edward no allegiance. He is not my sovereign. He never received my homage. So, definitely shades of the reported words of Balon Greyjoy there. And we think it's an interesting choice on George's part to use this particular historical reference. The reported words of William Wallace were only attributed to him several centuries after he lived, although he definitely may have expressed such a sentiment that was passed down through the generations into legend before it was finally recorded, the only thing we can say with certainty is that over the years, the words, as they were attributed to him, became emblematic of Scottish nationalism. So, painting Balon in the vein of a nationalist standing up against an oppressive regime add some definite romanticism to how the Ironborn may have viewed Balon's choice to rebel, regardless of the wisdom of that choice. At any rate, while that defence, if it was made, served no purpose for William Wallace, who was promptly executed by the English, since Robert Baratheon was about as different from Edward I of England as he was from his brother Stannis, His reaction to this disingenuous but defiant statement from his defeated foe was laughter. Yeah, that's right. The World Book tells us that Robert, who liked, quote, spirit in a man, laughed and said, swear one now or lose that stubborn head of yours. And so Balon bent the knee to Robert. As he would tell his daughter Asha years later, no man has ever died from bending his knee. He who kneels may rise again, blade in hand. He who will not kneel stays dead, stiff legs and all. And this line somewhat echoes the ironborn mantra of the religion of the drowned god. What is dead may never die, but rises again harder and stronger. Only in this case it's more, what is not dead will rise again. So we see how much Balon embodies the quintessential Ironborn, but we also have a potent indicator that Balon's sense of rebellion was far from extinguished, even as he faced what might be seen as the biggest blow yet. With his two eldest sons dead, the price of bending his knee and being allowed to keep his head and his lordship would be to send his last remaining son to be a hostage, or more colloquially, a ward of Ned Stark at Winterfell. Yeah, imagine the bitterness for such a man to have to give his youngest son to one of the men responsible for his humiliation and defeat. In A Clash of Kings, when Theon returns to Pike, Balon would call Ned the man who put your true brothers to the sword, and we can almost feel his satisfaction when he tells his last living son, They're both dead, Stark and that Robert who broke my walls with his stones. I vowed I'd live to see them both in their graves, and I have. But that's ten years in the future. In the days following the end of his rebellion, Balon no doubt had other things to distract him, as the fact that Robert Baratheon had indeed crossed his moat meant that there were ravages of war to be repaired all over the Iron Islands. 
Lord's Port had been destroyed, the walls of Pike shattered, and the Iron Fleet smashed. And there were other consequences. Many ironborn men died in Balon's defeat. There was rapine and plunder, and Theon wasn't the only heir sent away into fosterage. Asha would deliver this clear-eyed evaluation of Balon's first rebellion following his death. Freedom, ever sweet. Aye, it's so, he gave us that. And widows, too, as Lord Blacktide will tell you. How many of you had your homes put to the torch when Robert came? How many had daughters raped and despoiled, burnt towns and broken castles? My father gave you that. Defeat was what he gave you. And it's Baylor Blacktide she's referring to there, who was a boy during the rebellion, sent into fosterage after his father died as Robert subjugated the islands, he spent eight years a hostage in Old Town and returned to the Iron Islands as a follower of the Seven. His assessment of Balon's rebellion was also frank and to the point. We cannot stand alone against all Westeros. King Robert proved that to our grief. Balon would pay the iron price for freedom, he said, but our women bought Balon's crowns with empty beds. My mother was one such, the old way is dead. And Baylor Blacktide also went on to know that he would trade Balon's freedom for a father. So obviously not everyone in the islands agreed with Balon's decision to rebel. The widows of the rebellion are mentioned more than once, with Balon's own sister-in-law, Gwyneth Harlaw, being one of them. Balon's wife, Alanis, would be shattered by the loss of her sons, Asha would relate how she brought young boys to Pike to foster in an obvious effort to replace those she had lost, and how in years to come she would, quote, wander the halls at night with a candle, looking for her sons. And Lady Alanis's brother, Roderick Harlow, Lord of Harlow, would tell Asha, This dream of kingship is a madness in our blood. It's land we need, not crowns. And he would go on to say something even more blunt. Your father had more courage than sense. The old way served the Isles well when we were one small kingdom amongst many. But Aegon's conquest put an end to that. Balon refused to see what was plain before him. The old way died with Black Harren and his sons. Yeah, Asha herself would reflect that while she loved her father, she, quote, did not delude herself. Balon had been blind in some respects. A brave man, but a bad lord. So truly the judgment of history, or even that of his own family members, would not vindicate Balon's choices. A romantic rebel fighting oppression is how he may have seen himself, but clearly many of his people, dealing with poverty, loss, and humiliation, did not see it in that light. So Balon obviously would have had his hands full as he and his vassals worked to repair the ravages of his rebellion on the islands. But rather than doing so out of a sense of honour and living up to his new vows to Robert, as we see other lords doing both historically during the Targaryen conquest and following Robert's rebellion, or even with some remorse for the wounds done to his people, we get the sense Balon was recalcitrant, binding his time, and that, as the years passed, 
His bitterness and pride only hardened to a steely resolve to not only prevail in his dream of restoring the old way, but to have his revenge upon those who had humiliated him. Yeah, we don't know much about how things went in the Iron Islands during those years, except that walls and castles and buildings were repaired. Otherwise, life on the island seems to have gone on much as before. When asked how things had changed in his home, Aaron Greyjoy would tell his nephew Theon, Men fish the sea, dig in the earth, and die. Women birth children in blood and pain, and die. Night follows day, the winds and tides remain. The islands are as our god made them. But to be sure, Aaron himself was much changed. He had been a youth when his father died during Robert's rebellion, and a young man during Balon's first rebellion, captaining his ship Golden Storm, which sunk off Fair Isle in the battle with Stannis Baratheon's Royal Navy. Aaron was held captive at Casterly Rock, and was probably released only following his brother paying a ransom of some sort to his captors. But sometime after that, he would have a life-changing near-death experience at sea. Yeah, Theon recalls how his uncle had been amiable, feckless, and quick to laugh, fond of songs, ale, and women. Aaron himself thinks of his early manhood as filled with folly and that he was, quote, young and vain, and it's heavily implied that his drinking and comical behavior were an effort to mask some hidden traumas from his early life, namely the death of his brother Uragon, for which he felt responsible, and the unnamed terror wrought by his elder brother Euron. But when Aaron was drowned and then washed ashore still living, everything changed. He would say, the sea washed my follies and my vanities away. My lungs filled with seawater and the fish ate the scales off my eyes. When I rose again, I saw clearly. And following that experience, he became a priest of the drowned god known as the Dampere and renowned for his ability to drown men in a ceremonial baptism and bring them back to life using a primitive form of CPR that must have seemed like magic to his followers and converts. And with his transformation, Aaron became almost universally respected in the islands. At the same time, his brother Victarion doesn't seem to have suffered much at all in esteem following his defeat by Stannis. He remained the captain of the Iron Fleet and is considered strong and tireless and dutiful by Theon and the strongest of Lord Quellon's sons, a bull of a man, fearless and dutiful by his brother Aaron. His personality made him a natural right-hand man and lieutenant for his brother Balon. Yeah, but while there's no evidence that Victarion's relationship with Euron had ever been troubled in their youth, as Aaron's had been, about eight years after Balon's rebellion, things went very sour between the two middle brothers. Victarion had taken a salt wife to replace his first and second wives who had died some years previously. His brother Euron seduced his wife and impregnated her, then boasted about it to his brother. Victarion beat the woman to death with his bare hands, an act which, for obvious reasons, continues to trouble him years later. And by way of explanation, he would tell Asha when she asked him about it, Euron put a baby in her belly and made me do the killing. I would have killed him too, but Balon would have no kinslaying in his hall. He sent Euron into exile, never to return. 
So the sentence of exile was likely meant to be permanent, and we wonder again just how much Balon was aware of Euron's pattern of abuse within the family. Was this the final straw for him, or was he simply trying to avoid fratricide in his own castle? Well, as we've said, it's really impossible to know with any certainty, but we will point to a personality trait of Balon's that's mentioned time and again by people who knew him well. His blindness to things he did not wish to see seems to have been a byproduct of his monumental will. Roderick the Reader said, Balon refused to see what was plain before him. And this might just be the case with Euron, who was no doubt extremely useful in some regards, until it became impossible to ignore his transgressions. So with Euron banished, Theon in the hands of Ned Stark, and Aaron turned priest, Balon was left with his right-hand Victarion and his daughter Asha. Aaron would tell Theon, With your brothers dead and you taken by the wolves, your sister was his solace. He learned to rely on her, and she has never failed him. Yeah, although Aaron would also think, That was Balon's blindness. He saw himself in his wild, headstrong daughter and believed she could succeed him. He was wrong in that, and Aaron tried to tell him so. But Balon could be deaf to things he did not wish to hear. So, more notes of Balon's willfulness, his blindness, and his refusal to listen to counsel. All in all, we have a picture of a man of great pride and will, whose dreams of greatness amounted to a crusade of sorts, and whose defeat left him bitter but still stubbornly resolved, who wouldn't listen to what others deemed sense, and whose hubris led to enormous suffering on the part of his people and his family. And then, ten years after his defeat by Robert Baratheon, came the moment we can only assume he had waited for all that time. Robert's death and the Lannisters' subsequent actions threw the realm into chaos. With the execution of Ned Stark and the fires of civil war spreading across the country, the time for revenge had finally arrived. In our next segment, we'll look at Theon Greyjoy's return to the islands of his birth and Balon's entry into the struggle known in retrospect as the War of the Five Kings. You reward yourself handsomely for a notion and a few lines of scribbling. The pup says nothing about a reward, only that you speak for him and I am to listen and give him my sails and swords and in return he will give me a crown. He will give me a crown. A poor choice of words. What is meant is... What is meant is what is said. The boy will give me a crown, and what is given can be taken away. Have you gone mad? Mind your tongue. You are not in Winterfell now, and I am not Rob the boy that you should speak to me so. I am the Greyjoy, Lord Reaper of Pike, King of Salt and Rock, Son of the Sea Wind, and no man gives me a crown. I pay the iron price. I will take my crown, as you're on red-handed, 
5,000 years ago. When Robert Baratheon died and the Lannisters executed his father, Rob Stark became Lord of Winterfell and, shortly thereafter, King in the North. At his side for all of it was Theon Greyjoy, his foster brother, who was as much hostage as Ward. Perhaps the clearest indicator to this was the fact that, although Theon had long since attained the age of manhood, he'd remained at Winterfell rather than returning to his family. This wouldn't be the case with a simple ward who would traditionally move on to knighthood or otherwise taking up his adult responsibilities with his family upon reaching manhood, as in fact Ned Stark had done following his fosterage with John Arryn, and his brother Brandon had done following his years in Barrowton with Lord Dustin. Yeah, that's right. In fact, George has called the use of the term ward, in this case, polite fiction. All of which is to say that it seems pretty clear that Ned or Roberts or both didn't trust Balon Greyjoy and were keeping Theon very close for that reason. As Balon's only living son, Theon was certainly his heir by all the laws and understanding of the Greenlanders and in fact Ned said as much to Catelyn when they met briefly in King's Landing following his arrival there telling her, From this day on, I want a careful watch kept over Theon Greyjoy. If there is a war, we shall have sore need of his father's fleet. Although much has been said in the fandom about whether Ned would have executed Theon at any point during his years as hostage, we think it's clear in this case that Ned thought to leverage his control of the Greyjoy heir to gain Balon's cooperation in a possible war with the Lannisters. And perhaps the better question is, would Balon have cooperated with Ned? At any rate, Catelyn brought the message to Rob, but Rob had grown close to Theon during their shared upbringing. Theon would think that he had, quote, a certain affection as for a younger brother, for Rob Stark, whilst telling his father, he heeds me, I have earned his trust, he looks on me as an older brother. And Bran would note how inseparable Rob and Theon had become following the departure of Ned and John from Winterfell, and even more so when trouble arose in King's Landing and Rob was taking counsel on the course of action he should take. But while Theon was close in Rob's counsels and fought bravely at Whispering Wood and the Battle of the Camps, Catelyn Stark couldn't forget her husband's words. Within weeks of Ned's death, Rob was planning to send Theon as an emissary to Balon, but his mother disagreed strongly, as seen in this passage. I would sooner you sent someone else to Pike and kept Theon close to you. Who better to treat with Balon Greyjoy than his son? Jason Malister, offered Catelyn, Tytos Blackwood, Stevron Frey, anyone but not Theon. Her son squatted beside Grey Wind, ruffling the wolf's fur and, incidentally, avoiding her eyes. Theon's fought bravely for us. I told you how he saved Bran from those wildlings in the wolf's wood. If the Lannisters won't make peace, I'll have need of Lord Greyjoy's longships. So Rob almost exactly quotes his father there about needing Balon's cooperation. 
And while Rob may have been in general agreement with Ned about the need for Balon's longships, he went seriously astray in assuming that Theon could negotiate that alliance and that Balon could be trusted. Furthermore, we've discussed elsewhere that Theon had designs on a crown of his own very early on and likely suggested his mission to the Iron Islands to Rob as a devious way of securing it, manipulating the situation to his own end. Well, in fact, Catelyn saw the danger and suggested sending someone, anyone else, and perhaps someone else, would have seen the plain truth that somehow evaded Theon when he arrived in Lordsport some months after Ned's death. After observing the changes in the harbour town, Theon turned his attention to the ships in the harbour itself. In addition to the usual trading vessels and fishing boats, it says, A great number of longships, fifty or sixty at the least, stood out to sea or lay beached on the pebbled shore to the north. Some of the sails bore devices from the other islands. So Theon briefly wonders about this, noting correctly that it appeared his father had begun the muster of the Greyjoy banners. But, arriving at the conclusion that since no one knew of his plan, then his father must have anticipated him or simply be acting out of caution. He gave no more thought to the matter. A more seasoned man may have wondered what exactly Lord Balon was planning to do with his fleet once it was assembled and at the timing of the muster. What seems evident in hindsight is that Balon must have called his banners very soon after receiving word of Ned's death, some two months prior to Theon's arrival. Well, this fact raises serious questions about how much Balon's loyalty could have actually been bought if Theon continued as a Stark hostage. On the one hand, news had flown more recently about Theon's imminent return, it says, It was not as though they'd had no word of his arrival. Rob had sent ravens from Riverrun, and when they'd found no longship at Seaguard, Jason Malister had sent his own birds to Pike, supposing that Rob's were lost. But, on the other hand, no answers came back, and it seems Balon was content to proceed with his plans whether Theon made his way home or not. And so we come to the point of Balon's perception of his daughter, Asher. In the last segment, we noted that Aaron told Theon, With your brothers dead and you taken by the wolves, your sister was his solace. He learned to rely on her and she never has failed him. From Aaron's point of view, we also eventually learn that Balon feared the wolves had made a weakling of his last surviving son. And so we come once again to the question, since it's made explicit he viewed Asher as a mirror of himself and his successor, how much value did Balon actually place upon the return of his youngest son? And did it in fact represent any hindrance to him to have his son a continued hostage of the Starks? Well, based upon the reception Theon eventually received from his father, the lack of confidence that would be shown in his abilities and Balon's own actions leading up to Theon's return and following it, we'd have to go with not very much at all and a resounding no. 
Balon Greyjoy, in our opinion, was a cold, hard man, a true product of the Iron Islands, who had mourned the loss of his sons, all three of them, many years previously, and was now set only upon revenge for that loss, and realizing that dream of kingship that Roderick Harlaw saw as, quote, a madness in his blood. Yeah, that's right. And when he arrives at Pike, Theon is immediately put on the defensive when Balon asks what the Starks have returned to him. A man, Balon's blood and heir, declares the younger Greyjoy. Balon only replies, we shall see, and suggests his son has grown soft living among the Starks in the Greenlands. Theon tells him, you're wrong. Ned Stark was my jailer, but my blood is still salt and iron. But Balon doesn't seem to believe his son's words. It becomes clear that he's still angry with Ned and Robert, though both are now dead, and that he holds a sizable grudge against the living Starks for the loss of his sons. Right, and when, as we heard, Theon refers to Rob as a brother, Balon grows angry and reminds his son of the two brothers he lost in Balon's rebellion. Theon doesn't seem to mourn their passing or hold any particular grudges in their deaths, but he is put on warning that he must tread carefully around this father, who is a stranger to him. So Balon's clearly looking for actions to convince him where Theon's loyalties lie. When Theon presents Rob's offer of an alliance, Balon is dismissive and declares his intention to take his crown in the old way, by paying the iron price, not by forging alliances or humbly accepting one as a gift. Yeah, he does, and Theon at first is shocked by his father's anger and refusal. But as he listens to Balon's declaration and learns the broad strokes of his father's plan, events seem to move quickly beyond his control. His father rejects Rob's offer and tells Theon what the Ironborn course will be. Do you think I gather my ships to watch them rock at anchor? I mean to carve out a kingdom with fire and sword, but not from the west and not at the bidding of King Rob the Boy. Casterly Rock is too strong, and Lord Tywin too cunning by half. Aye, we might take Lannisport, but we should never keep it. No, I hunger for a different plum, not so juicy sweet to be sure. Yet it hangs there, ripe and undefended. So we see that Balon plans to gain his revenge on Ned Stark at last by striking at the north. It seems the old man has outlived his two former adversaries out of sheer spite, and rather than accept an alliance with Rob, he has hatched a devious plan to do something that amounts to taking Rob in the rear by sneaking into the north from the sea and closing the crossing at Moat Caelan. Rob played into Balon's hand by sending Theon as his emissary, although, as we suggested, it's not entirely clear whether Theon continuing as a hostage would have restrained him. And so Theon, along with his sister Asha, who's clearly the favoured child and holds much of Balon's confidence, along with Balon's right-hand man and commander of the Iron Fleet, Victarion, 
are given commands to take ironborn ships raiding up and down the west coast of the Stark Lands. Asha would take 30 longships to Sea Dragon Point and from there march inland to take Deepwood Mott. Victarion would take the main strength of the Iron Fleet to Moat Kalen to close the neck against any returning northern army. Theon, though, would strike first, but with only eight longships under his command, and with his uncle Aaron and Dagmar Clefjaw along for the ride, he perhaps rightly felt it was hardly even a true command. His target would be the stony shore and the fishing villages along the northern coast, with Balon's hope being that these attacks would draw off what little strength remained to defend the north. Yes, so while Theon felt that not much faith was being placed in him there, it was a masterful plan by Balon. While the Ironborn could expect very little resistance, with the bulk of the northern levy away fighting in the Riverlands, there was still sufficient fighting men remaining to defend a single point. By beginning with this distraction on the northwest coast, Balon hoped to provide Asher, and more importantly Victarion, a better chance of succeeding in their missions. But of course, Balon's plan primarily depended upon his invaders keeping a foot in, or at least near, the sea from which they came, and it seemed to stand a good chance of succeeding. Following the initial raids, in which a few men were allowed to escape to bring word to nearby Torren Square, Leobald Talhar, the castellan, did exactly what Balon had predicted and sent a force of fighting men, his own nephew Benfred, with his so-called wild hares, to deal with Theon's raiders. But far from being surprised by the defense, the 200 or so ironborn were able to fall upon the northerners as they approached and destroy them. Benfred Talhart survived, but when he refused to answer questions and insulted Theon and the Drowned God, he was executed by Aaron and his followers. And then Theon made the decision that would change the complexion of Balon's invasion. Sending his uncle Aaron back to raiding with six of the ships under his command, Theon took his own crew straight into the hearts of the north, while Dagmar Clefjaw took a similar group to Torren Square to draw away the defenders of Winterfell. Ultimately, Theon's decision to use his knowledge of the Stark Seat to seize the ancient fortress with a force of 30 men, while devious and clever, represented a desire on his part not only to prove himself to his father, but to take something that he had clearly always envied for his own. And we think it's interesting that while Balon's motivation seems to be vengeance, seasoned with pride and hubris, Theon's aren't really all that different. He craves a sense of belonging, and that has evaded him for most of his life due to the actions of his father and his forced residence at Winterfell, which almost certainly became a symbol of the family Theon wanted desperately to belong to, but never truly would. In defying his father's orders as a way of seeking approval and taking what he wanted, Theon was, in an odd way, channeling the spirit of Balon, perverse, vengeful, and prideful. But far from celebrating his son's daring, Balon would ultimately despair for his judgment, his character, and his life. 
When his brother Aaron would later tell him of Theon's fate and the sack of Winterfell, Balon's reply confirmed our suspicions. The wolves have made a weakling of him, as I feared. I pray God that they killed him, so he cannot stand in Asher's way. So, getting back to the action, Theon's gambit would succeed after a fashion. Sir Roderick Cassell led the Winterfell garrison out to defend Torren Square. The shield wall of the Ironborn, lacking the discipline to withstand a charge of heavy horse, crumbled and Dagmar led the survivors back to the stony shore, making for the two longships that had been left there. In the meantime, over the course of a month-long siege, Asha had managed to take Deepwood with her force of a thousand men, capturing Lady Sybil Glover and her two children. But Victorian's assault on Moat Kaelin would be the true objective. Balon would tell his brother, Once we hold Moat Kaelin, the pup will not be able to win back to the north, and if he is fool enough to try, his enemies will seal the south end of the causeway behind him, and Rob the boy will find himself caught like a rat in a bottle. And so, with the bulk of the Iron Fleet, likely more than 60 longships, and, judging by the size of the force Asha is noted to have, upwards of 2,000 men, Victarion would lead a surprise attack up the Salt Spear to the headwaters of the Fever River and march overland 20 miles to take the stronghold of the moat from the rear. Lightly defended by a force of 200 archers who would have been watching the causeway rather than their northern flank, the moat fell easily to the raiders. And now Balon's goal was achieved, but thanks to Theon's impulsivity, he had gained rather more than he had bargained for. The Northmen and their allies couldn't know the truth of the evolution of the action, and of course the initial capture of Winterfell would be seen as part of the plan. But when Theon faked Bran and Rickon's deaths, that action would be laid squarely upon him, as a traitor to the family that had raised him for ten years. And it's probably around the time that news of his son's act was beginning to circulate that Balon sent his first message to King's Landing, inviting Joffrey to send an envoy to the Iron Islands to, quote, fix the borders between their realms and discuss a possible alliance. This letter would arrive in King's Landing before the Battle of Blackwater, and while Tyrion would find it intriguing, he was too busy with the imminent threat of Stannis' fleet to take any action. And it was some weeks later, not long after the highly significant Battle of the Blackwater took place in the south, that Asher would visit her brother at Winterfell. She would bring him news of Dagmar's defeat and retreat, and a mere ten men. Theon would tell her, The victory at Torren Square has given Leobald Tallheart the courage to come out from behind his walls and join Sir Roderick. And I've had reports that Lord Manderley has sent a dozen barges upriver packed with knights, war horses and siege engines. The Umbers are gathering beyond the last river as well. I'll have an army at my gates before the moon turns. Reminding him of their orders from their father, she proceeded to point out what Balon knew perfectly well when he devised his plan. Krakens rise from the sea. Our strength is in our longships. Ironborn, she says, should remain 
close enough to the sea for supplies and fresh men to reach them whenever they're needful. And, she would continue, Winterfell is hundreds of leagues inland, ringed by woods, hills, and hostile holdfasts and castles, and every man in a thousand leagues is your enemy now. Make no mistake, you made certain of that when you mounted those heads on your gatehouse. And so she departed, after urging Theon to abandon his prize and come with her. Instead, he stubbornly opted to stay, and following her departure, he would send the serving man Reek off with a bag of silver to raise a force of reinforcements. And indeed, as Theon predicted, there would be an army numbering nearly 2,000 at the gates of Winterfell before the month was out. While defeat looked certain for Theon, and he would briefly contemplate surrendering and taking the black, at the last moment, Reek would return with a force of 600 Dreadfort men. And since the northern army outside the walls at first took their fellows to be reinforcements, they failed to see the threat posed by treachery. And Reek, who, of course, was none other than Ramsay Snow, would lead the slaughter of Roderick Cassell, Clay Kerwin, Leobald Talhar, and hundreds of others in the winter town outside of Winterfell. But the treachery didn't end there. When Theon opened the gates to what he thought was his salvation, Ramsay and his men entered, slaughtered Theon's remaining 17 men and many of the household of Winterfell, before rounding up the women and children and taking them, along with Theon, to the Dreadfort and a horrifying captivity. The castle would be torched as they departed and the entire bloody mess laid at Theon's door. In the meantime, having served his role as a raider on the stony shore, Aaron Dampere would next return to Pike, bearing news of Theon's fate, leading to Balon's desperate sentiment that we heard earlier. While he had most likely considered Theon dead to him many years ago and had clearly favored Asha in the time since, now we see Balon actively praying for the death of his youngest son. Once again, Theon and his father aren't separated by much in their reasoning, as no doubt Theon himself would shortly be praying for the very same thing. And now, with hardly any Northmen left to oppose them, Dagmar Clefjaw would return to Torren Square and take the lightly guarded castle. And so, some weeks later, when Balon would once again write to King's Landing, offering terms of an alliance, he could claim that his forces now held three strongholds in the north, including the all-important Mokalin, and that the Stark seat and most of the northern resistance had been utterly destroyed. So, we've mentioned in our War of the Five Kings series that while Tywin Lannister acknowledged that the Greyjoy longships were now well-positioned to menace the West and the Reach, he didn't seem to share the opinion of Lords Tyrell and Redwine that the North at this point was so valueless that it should be ceded to the Ironborn in exchange for them finishing the Northmen and bringing their navy into play for the final assault on Dragonstone. Well, time would tell that Tywin had his own designs upon the North with the marriage of his son to the apparently last surviving child of Eddard Stark. 
And speaking of Dragonstone, within a matter of days, Stannis's Red Priestess would perform a ritual there that would be designed to remove his remaining challengers from the board. Within days of his second letter being considered by the small council, Balon would be dead, apparently having fallen from one of Pike's perilous rope bridges during a storm. Balon Greyjoy's second rebellion was at once more successful and with much higher stakes than his first. As he seems to have done ten years previously, he himself never left Pike and had little to do with the action. He chose once again to send his family members as trusted lieutenants in his stead and equipped them with a sound strategy of his own devising. The strategy was safe and easy, one of taking a virtually undefended territory from someone who was offering terms of alliance and therefore didn't suspect a threat. Theon's gambit at Winterfell notwithstanding, Balon more than likely felt himself to be successful in those last weeks of his life. Balon Greyjoy's strength lay in his iron will, his embodiment of the iron-born ideal and his stubborn pursuit of his dream. His daughter Asher would recall his stubbornness and his bravery. His brother Victarion would call him a great man and Aaron would deliver a clear-eyed assessment of Balon, thinking, quote, If age and grief had turned Balon bitter with the years, they had also made him more determined than any man alive. Unfortunately, Balon had another brother, one who neither worshipped him nor saw him as a brave leader. In fact, it would seem, in the end, that Euron Greyjoy saw his elder brother as nothing more than an impediment to his own dreams, and perhaps Aaron had it wrong when he named the eldest Greyjoy more determined than any man alive. Euron would prove the lie of that when he sailed back to Pike one day after his brother's death, returning from an exile that had been laid upon him for the term of Balon's life. And so, when we return, we'll be taking a very close look at the death of Balon Greyjoy, who was involved, and how it was accomplished and foreshadowed in the text. A thousand years before, the sons of the River King had been slaughtered at Pike, hacked to bits in their beds so that pieces of their bodies might be sent back to their father on the mainland. But Greyjoys were not murdered in Pike, except once in a great while by their brothers. The first time we hear of Balon's death for certain is in A Storm of Swords as Catelyn travels through Hagsmire to the twins in the lead-up to the Red Wedding. Fittingly, it's a sailor, the captain of the Miraham, who had delivered Theon to the Iron Islands half a year previously, who delivers the news. And here's the passage. My last port of call before Seaguard, that was Lord's Port on Pike. The Ironmen kept me more than half a year they did. King Balon's command, only, well, the long and the short of it is, he's dead. Balon Greyjoy? Catelyn's heart skipped a beat. You are telling us that Balon Greyjoy is dead? The shabby little captain nodded. 
You know how pikes built on a headland and part on the rocks and islands off the shore with bridges between. The way I heard it in Lord's Port, there was a blow coming in from the west, rain and thunder, and old King Balon was crossing one of them bridges when the wind got hold of it and just tore the thing to pieces. He washed up two days later, all bloated and broken. Crabs ate his eyes, I hear. So his captain also details the arrival of Balon's brother Euron, rather suspiciously returned from years of exile no sooner than Balon was called. The reader has good reason to be suspicious of this synchronicity, as Euron is immediately described as as black a pirate as ever raised a sail. He apparently sat himself on the sea stone chair without much hesitation and even had Lord Sawain Butley drowned in a cask of seawater when he objected. And so, rather than wondering if Euron killed Balon, the reader is left to ponder exactly how. The answer, it seems to us and many in the fandom, has already been beneath our eyes hundreds of pages prior. Balon's death fits several portents perfectly, so let's turn back the pages and assess the clues. First of all, the demise of Balon was prophesied by Melisandre to Stannis. Whether by the grace of Relore or just good luck, the burning of Melisandre's leeches seems to promise Balon's death. The leeches were fat with Edric Storm's king's blood, which Mel believes to be magical. It says... Stannis grasped the second. The usurper, he declared, louder this time. Balon Greyjoy. He flipped it lightly onto the brazier, and its flesh split and cracked. The blood burst from it, hissing and smoking. However, we can go back even further in A Storm of Swords to find the very first foreshadowing via prophecy. Whereas Melisandre often displays degrees of charlatanism with her relorism, the ghost of High Heart, drawing on powers bestowed to her by the old gods, is ultimately more respectable as a prophet. And so in hindsight, we should have been paying close attention to her words when she said this to the Brotherhood Without Banners. I dreamt of a man without a face, waiting on a bridge that swayed and swung. On his shoulder perched a drowned crow with seaweed hanging from his wings. And then in her second on-page meeting with the Brotherhood, she says, The king is dead. Is that sour enough for you? Which bloody king is dead, crone? Lem demanded. The wet one. The kraken king, my lords. I dreamt him dead and he died. And the iron squids now turn on one another. So coming before the confirmation we get from the captain of the Miraham, the ghost of High Heart is using her strange powers to bring the initial news of Balon's death to the reader. But what more can be gleaned from her magical dreams? Well, the first prophecy mentions a bridge that swayed and swung, which, with the hindsight of what the captain said, sounds a lot like the description of Balon's death at Pike. The man without a face waiting on the bridge sounds like a faceless man. The infamously deadly Assassin's Guild, based in Bravos, are known to operate anywhere for a price, and so the notion of Balon being killed by a hired assassin is a great fit. 
and furthermore, there is a drowned crow with seaweed hanging from his wings on the assassin's shoulder. Euron is nicknamed the Crow's Eye, and the drowning and seaweed could signify his ironborn heritage. With hindsight at least, we think it's not the most difficult prophecy to match the text. And finally, in the 2016 Balticon reading of The Forsaken, and quick spoiler alert for that, Euron details to a captive Aaron the number of brothers he's killed, and confesses this. Oh, and Balon was the third, but you knew that. I could not do the deed myself, but it was my hand that pushed him off the bridge. So at this stage, it seems like an open and shut case. Euron hired a faceless man to kill Balon, and then sailed his silence into Lordsport soon after. The next day, in fact, according to Roger Carlaw and Gorald Goodbrother, with the motive being the seizing of power over the Ironborn. However, there are other aspects of the mystery to explore. First, there's the issue of the payment to the faceless men. In A Game of Thrones, the cost of hiring the master assassins is an issue raised at the small council with regard to the plotting against Daenerys Targaryen. On Bravos, there is a society called the Faceless Men, Grandmaster Pycelle offered. Do you have any idea how costly they are? Littlefinger complained. You could hire an army of common swords for half the price, and that's for a merchant. I don't dare think what they might ask for a princess. So Littlefinger highlights an aspect of their pricing policy, which seems to indicate that the more valuable the target, the greater the cost. Balon was king and leader of the Iron Islands, and so it must have taken something special for them to do Euron's dirty work. And so sharp-eyed readers in the fandom have noticed that Euron claims to have once had a very special item in his possession, which the faceless men would surely be glad to receive. Here's a quote from A Feast for Crows. The crow's eye sipped from his silver cup. I once held a dragon's egg in his hand, brother. This merish wizard swore he could hatch it if I gave him a year and all the gold that he required. When I grew bored with his excuses, I slew him. As he watched his entrails sliding through his fingers, he said, but it has not been a year. Victarion shuddered. Show me this dragon's egg. I threw it in the sea during one of my dark moods. Euron gave a shrug. So Euron apparently once owned a priceless dragon egg and simply threw it away? Or did he use it to leverage the political assassination of his own brother in order to sit the sea stone chair? We believe this is far and away the strongest theory on the matter, and we want to point out that if you equate Balon himself with the theorized price of his assassination, the dragon egg, then Euron's remark, I threw it into the sea, takes on a very dark and unambiguous secret meaning. And the final aspect of this mystery to consider is if the assassin was a character we know. Jacques and Hagar is a highly skilled, faceless man 
in Westeros. He left Harrenhal a month or two before Balon's death, only to reappear months later in the Reach. With no indication of what he did in that time, we can't rule him out as Balon's murderer. There's no telling when Euron could have made contact with the Guild, or what Jacken's mission in Westeros may have entailed. However, there are more than one faceless men, and it could be that Euron made contact with the House of Black and White and then transported someone over on his ship, letting the faceless man travel ahead and complete the murder before sailing into Pike himself. Yes, so there are options. And we noticed a couple of historical parallels that are of interest here. On the subject of the faceless men, there's the story of Harlan Hoare. Harlan was the heir of King Corwin the Cunning and was about to come into power as Corwin lay dying. But he was suddenly killed after allegedly falling from his horse. Some blamed Harlan's younger brother while others suspected the work of a faceless man. Whether Harlan's brother could have been the one to hire an assassin is not pondered upon by Yandel, yet is what might be between the lines here, and not therefore too dissimilar to Euron and Balon. Yeah, and finally, we're not the only ones to see shades of Euron Grey Iron in the situation. Here's the full quote from A Feast for Crows that we opened the episode with. Archmaster Rigney once wrote that history is a wheel, for the nature of man is fundamentally unchanging. What has happened before will perforce happen again, he said. I think of that whenever I contemplate the crow's eye. Euron Greyjoy sounds queerly like Euron Greyiron to these old ears. I shall not go to Old Wick, nor should you. Euron Greyiron is infamous for slaying his opponents at the King's Moot which, although not exactly the same, reminds us somewhat of Euron killing his brothers, and that takes us back to A Clash of Kings when Theon thinks, Greyjoys were not murdered in Pike, except once in a great while, by their brothers. So perhaps the earliest of foreshadowing regarding Balon's murder lies in that quote. And finally, we found one other possible sneaky allusion to the deed placed in a feast for crows when Aaron learns of his brother's death. He thinks, He was born a lord's son and died a king, murdered by a jealous god, and now the storm is coming, a storm such as these isles have never known. Later in a feast for crows, Euron informed Roderick Harlaw, I am the storm, my lord, the first storm and the last. And fast forward to the Forsaken chapter, where there's a notable scene where Euron says to Aaron, I am your god. So Aaron's thoughts about Balon's death had been for the storm god, the ancient enemy of the drowned god, but we think that Euron's associating himself with both storms and a god is quite telling. So, all in all, Balon's murder, essentially by his brother Euron, seems to have not only been foreshadowed in the text, as well as in Westerosi history, but we think there are plenty of credible hints to the assassination having been carried out by the faceless men of Bravos for a freely given dragon's egg. 
And with the cause of Balon's sudden death addressed, when we come back, we'll look at the legacy of his life and where House Greyjoy might be headed. But first, here's a word from the damp hair himself, concerning the succession of the Seastone Chair. Listeners of Radio Westeros, come to the King's Moods on Old Wick. The Iron King is dead, yet a king will come again. For what is dead may never die, but rises again, harder and stronger. In the name of the drowned god, you are summoned. Leave your halls and hovels, your castles and your keeps, and travel to Naga's Hill to see the king's moot. No godless man may sit the sea stone chair, and so I say to you, seek the Grey King's Hall, for in that holy place, when the moon has drowned and come again, the ironborn shall make themselves a worthy king, a godly king. Never mind the godless eldest son or the scheming favoured daughter, the ironborn shall have no king but from the king's moot, for only that shall finally make the Iron Islands great again. With the death of the eldest Greyjoy brother, it doesn't take long before we see the truth of the words of the Ghost of High Heart. The Iron Squids now turn on one another. Euron Greyjoy may have sat himself upon the sea stone chair, but his claim was far from ironclad. Balon left two children and three brothers behind. While Euron is the elder of the surviving brothers, he had been banished from the islands by the previous leader, and certainly Balon's surviving children would seem to have a better claim than his, according to both Greenland law and the tradition that had been followed in the islands since Euron Greyiron put an end to King's Moots by killing all of his challengers at Old Wick, earning himself the sobriquet Euron Redhand. And with Asha determined to press her own claim, and Aaron with no desire to put himself forward, but holding the traditionalist view that no woman could sit the sea stone chair, equally determined to see his brother Victarion succeed Balon, the stage was set for a contested succession. And to prevent a bloody struggle, the damp hair, believing that his god had spoken to him, decreed a king's moot, saying, In the dawn of days the ironborn chose their own kings, raising up the worthiest amongst them. It is time we returned to the old way, for only that shall make us great again. And so the ironborn captains were summoned to Old Wick for the first time in hundreds of years to choose their own king from among the contenders. And while there would be a number of contenders who were not Greyjoys, the king's moot would really boil down to a contest between the three Greyjoys, Asha, Victarion, and Euron. And each arrived with a core set of supporters and a message. Once the moot began, it had the feel of a real-life caucus, with each claimant presenting his or her case and offering gifts to gain supporters. Essentially, the choice came down to maintaining the status quo with Victarion, following the progressive vision of Asher, or the lure of fantastic riches, political dominance and dragons, offered by Euron. 
Well, given the ubiquitous poverty and grimness of the islands, and the seeming cultural desire of the islanders to reclaim past glories, it's perhaps no surprise that Euron gained a majority when he demonstrated what appeared to be an artifact of great power, having one of his men blow the monstrous dragon horn at the moot. Although there seems to have been a missed opportunity for Asha and Victarion to merge their supporters and form a single block, as it happened, they split the more level-headed voters, and the crown was awarded to Euron amidst his theatrical presentation and ostentatious promises. And listening to the tale boiled down like that, as in so many other areas of the plot, it's very tempting to start to see a modern allegory in the text. But George is very insistent that that is not the case, telling an interviewer last year... What A Song of Ice and Fire is not is an allegory about the 21st century and 2017 politics. The people who try to apply that are as wrong as the people who tried to do that with Tolkien, talking about Lord of the Rings being about World War II. It wasn't about World War II. It was about the War for the Ring. If there are any politics being reflected in my books... It's the politics of the Hundred Years' War and the Crusades and the Wars of the Roses, not anything that's happened in 2017. So perhaps the real takeaway is that political machinations are omnipresent and that history repeats itself, which brings us right back to the quote we began the episode with. History is a wheel, for the nature of man is fundamentally unchanging. What has happened before will perforce happen again. And appropriately enough, we ourselves have come full circle there. And anyway, in the wake of Euron's victory, many who had opposed him fled the islands. Asher and Triss Botley, whose father Sawain had been murdered by Euron, fled back to the mainland. Roderick Harlaw quietly returned to Ten Towers, and Baylor Blacktide, who loudly refused to acknowledge Euron, was captured while attempting to leave Old Wick, executed, and then cut into seven pieces in a mockery of his belief in the faith of the Seven. Of Euron's brothers, Victarion, in spite of his internal monologue of hate and resentment for the elder brother who had humiliated him, hewed to his sense of duty and chose to remain as Euron's captain for the time being. After leading the attack on the Shield Isles, Victarion would be sent off to Slaver's Bay to retrieve Daenerys and her dragons for his brother. His loyalty to Euron would become increasingly less certain during that journey, and time will tell whether duty or ambition will prevail for the Iron Captain. As for Aeron, and spoilers for the Winds of Winter here, he refused to acknowledge the brother who had terrorised his youth. He left the King's Moot determined that a mistake had been made. He told Victarion of his intention to raise the small folk of the islands against Euron. The captains and the kings raised Euron up, but the common folk shall tear him down. I shall go to Great Wick, to Harlaw, to Orkmont, to Pike itself. In every town and village shall my words be heard. No godless man may sit the sea stone chair. 
Well, as we learned from the Forsaken chapter, it seems to have taken Victarion a mere few hours to betray his younger brother to his elder, as the Dampere was seized by Euron's men as he prayed for guidance from the drowned god on the shore of Old Wick, and would spend the next many months as a captive aboard Euron's silence. But that fact would not be common knowledge, as in A Dance with Dragons, both Asher and Victarion would think of Aeron preaching on the islands, trying to raise the people and the wrath of the drowned god to overthrow Euron's rule. And much as Asher had her uncle in her thoughts and wondered if he could help her raise the islands, her friend Triss Botley would warn her against such a plan. But in doing so, he would make an offhand reference that points to something we think will be pretty significant in the winds of winter and beyond. Even if you did find your uncle damp hair, the two of you would fail. You are both part of the king's moot, so you cannot say it was unlawful called as Torgon did. You are bound to its decision by all the laws of gods and men. So what starts as an offhand reference to a bit of Iron Island's history leads to a more complete telling of the tale of Torgon the Latecomer. Torgon Greyiron was the king's eldest son, but the king was old and Torgon restless, so it happened that when his father died, he was raiding along the Mander from his stronghold on Greyshield. His brothers sent no word to him, but instead quickly called the king's moot, thinking that one of them would be chosen to wear the driftwood crown. But the captains and the kings chose Uragon Goodbrother to rule instead. The first thing the new king did was command that all the sons of the old king be put to death, and so they were. After that, men called him Bad Brother, though in truth they'd been no kin of his. He ruled for almost two years. Torgon came home and said the king's moot was unlawful since he had not been there to make his claim. Bad Brother had proved to be as mean as he was cruel and had few friends left upon the isles. The priests denounced him and the lords rose against him and his own captains hacked him into pieces. Torgon the latecomer became the king and ruled for forty years. Asher's reaction to that historical reference is dramatic. And the inference seems pretty clear. Her own brother Theon had been absent from the king's moot and hadn't been given the opportunity to be there to make his claim. There's clearly a precedent for Euron's king's moot to be declared unlawful, at which point presumably another moot would be held and a new leader chosen. We think it's unlikely Asher is thinking that her brother Theon would be able to win the acclaim of the Ironborn lords and captains, but it is highly likely that someone as clever as she is might see an opportunity to wipe the slate clean or have a do-over of sorts. Yeah, that's right, and it's worth mentioning here that our collective knowledge of what will happen in the Winds of Winter from spoiler chapters is very heavy on Ironborn material, perhaps itself an indication of how significant to the plot these arcs are going to be going forward. We're already working on our massive Winds of Winter recap project, so you can expect to be hearing quite a bit more from us on the Greyjoy family in that context. But for now... 
We'll sign off our analysis of Balon by summarising the fallout of Balon's second rebellion for the Iron Islands and House Greyjoy. Having favoured his daughter over his son and declared no specific heir, after Balon's death, the way was paved for a king's moot to be called for the first time in generations. While this might seem to have been in keeping with his strong desire to bring back the old way to the islands, it would leave them open to great peril. Yeah, although those who chose to make Euron king won't have thought so, we think it's pretty clear that Euron's priorities are, even more than Balon's were, his own selfish ones, and not the betterment of his people, no matter what he might have told them at the moot. With Asha on the run, and later Stannis' captive, Victarion sent to Slaver's Bay and his fate uncertain, Aaron as Euron's captive, Theon as Ramses, and then also Stannis' captive, House Greyjoy is teetering on the brink of destruction in the opening pages of The Winds of Winter. While House Stark, and to some extent Houses Lannister and Baratheon, may be thought of as decimated by the War of the Five Kings, we think that House Greyjoy is at a similar nadir in the months following Balon's death. His hubris and drive for vengeance, and his blind ambition for the second time in his rule over the islands, placed not only his people, but his own family, children and brothers both, in harm's way and mostly to satisfy his own ego. In the end, one of Balon Greyjoy's most significant thematic additions to the narrative seems to be that of the repetitive nature of history as we see echoes of both his own past and that of the Iron Islands history play out in his arc. We really struggled to find any redeeming qualities in the man. Hard, calculating, and driven, his motives seem at once selfish and capricious. Perhaps the best that can be said is that he was determined and that he inspired the loyalty of his younger brothers and the admiration of his daughter. And as we said, those brothers and that daughter will almost certainly be the subject of future analyses here. And now it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks, as always, to George R.R. R. Martin for giving us so many great joys to analyze, and to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. We also want to take a moment to thank those of you who help the podcast by donating via PayPal or helping spread the word. Your support is very important to us. And speaking of support, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. Consider being a patron of the podcast, and you could be hearing your name here, too. Thanks to Peppernix, Lady Silverwing, Dean, Aileen, Josh, Jill, Casey, Eliana Targaryen, Aaron, Sasha, Matthew, Whitney, Alexis, Chris K, Marja the Mage, Jessica, June, John H, Lady of the Frostfangs, William James, Sir Bobby the Knight, Thrower of the Valyrian Steel Chair, Maltude, Melitza, Yorlen, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, J.M., the Mad Maester of Castle Black, Oxheart, Boss, Erodo, Marcel, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, and Lady Dialys of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to 
Harry Krishna, Sir Kyle Dane, Wielder of Sundown, Axe of the Afternoon, Dutch, Defender of the Berm, The Red Woman, Brian, Lizzie, Phil, Lenny, Christina, Clay, Amber, Yo and Longbeard, The Well-Read, Wine Gobbler from Ultima Thule, Monero Geek TV, Patrick, Scott, Tammy, Goldie Juke, Clarissa, Lady Storch, Ezra, Rachel, Joseph, Kevin, Adam, Danielle, Dennis, The Orange Man, Emma, Jeffrey, Judson, Roger, Jordana, Lauren, Cat of the First Men, Crimson Kate, Emily of the Erie, Terry, Jake, Melissa, Maria, Ryan, Stephen, Matthew, Derek, Jadzia Dane, and Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackroom, Sworn Alesmith to House Stark, Grandmaster of the Zithomancers Guild, and Keeper of the Buzz. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, and comment on our content there. Or find us on YouTube, and of course you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with another episode. Bye for now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.